0: That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. You're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week we ask, which country poses the greatest global threat? In the studio with me is retired Admiral William McRaven. Until 2014, he was commander of US Special Operations Command, responsible for 69,000 special ops forces across the world. He oversaw the missions that led to the capture of Saddam Hussein and the killing of Osama bin Laden. He's advised presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama on counterterrorism policy. Nowadays, Admiral McRaven is Chancellor of the University of Texas System, UTS. His new book draws from his training and a long career as a Navy SEAL. Welcome, Bill.
1: Thanks, good to be here. You're
0: going to tell me how to become a Navy SEAL a bit later on. <laughs> it? It's called Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe The World. Let's start with the big security challenge for the US and indeed globally. That's the Syrian civil war. Now, you've said something uh, somewhat controversial to, to my mind. You've said that the way to resolve this ultimately is Russian backing to replace Assad in a collaborative strategy. And yet the policy seems to be going in the other direction. The policy seems to be to accept that Assad is staying in post. Is that because you believe that what you've back to what you hope for is not deliverable.
1: Well, I I'd, uh, I guess I'd put my statement a little bit more context. What I said was we can't move forward without Russia. Whether that is the right thing to do or not remains to be seen. But the fact of the matter is, if you want Assad to go, then Russia is going to have to be a key player. So for us in the United States or I think in the UK or in Europe to assume that we can figure a solution to Syria without having Russia play a part, I think, is uh, is mistaken. That was the point.
0: But where does the point take you now? Because the point seems to be that at the moment that uh, Russia is able to operate almost in its own sphere in Syria. It's not in a joined up operation. According to many sources, it's not been hitting primarily ISIS targets. So you seem to be not getting much closer to well, that,
1: Well, eh? I'm not saying I have a solution to Syria, believe me. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure anyone does at this point. You know What I see happening, of course, is you are having a fractured country where Assad and the Syrian government will uh, probably continue to own that swath of land uh, from north to south, the kind of crescent there. The desert, uh, which was owned for the most part by ISIS, of course, is being pushed back by uh, U.S. And, uh, and the Syrian Defense Forces and others. And my expectation is we will see the, the downfall of ISIS here, uh, hopefully soon, as we move through Raqqa. That doesn't necessarily mean that ISIS will be defeated. We will certainly disrupt them, but it is this kind of perverted ideology that will bleed out, as we used to say, to other parts of the world, and we'll continue to have to fight ISIS in some form or fashion. So the fallout, obviously, from this incredible genocide and the mass migration and ISIS, uh, Syria is a very complex problem. I don't think anybody's got a real solution to it right now.
0: Let's stay, if we could, on the America-Russia relationship for a moment. I'm very curious, as a former Moscow Correspondent about how you're reading that, which is very muddied by the alleged Russian interference in the election and, and the to and fro on that, and many investigations which right. uh, seem to be about to take up the rest of our, our lives. Uh, on that, how much of a sense do you feel you have of what someone in uh, your career, your status on the other side of the net, is thinking and how they're perceiving deep military and naval strategy in Moscow?
1: The Russians, uh, like a lot of countries, but the Russians probably more so than most, uh, you know, have their own self-interest in mind. So I think everything they do, uh, you look at it from uh, a very Moscow-centric point of view. So their operations in the Ukraine and the Crimea, their push into Syria, uh, you know, Putin wants to be a global player. you you know this better than most, uh, and this has given him an opportunity to do it. The, the fact that we have. I think collectively the United States and others have struggled to, to find a foothold in terms of our, our international strategy has allowed Putin uh, to kind of fill a vacuum that he wouldn't have had in previous years. That,
0: that sounds like blame that can be laid at the door of the White House under Barack Obama.
1: Well, I think it can be laid at a lot of doorsteps. Uh, it's a pretty big doorstep. It is a big doorstep. But again, the world today, it isn't just about one nation. Uh, you know, I would hope that the United States will continue to lead on every front where it is appropriate to do so. But you have to lead with great partners and great allies, which we have across the world.
0: But hang on. Are you really saying when it came to not intervening in Syria, it's the fault of the allies that Barack Obama didn't intervene? Oh,
1: oh, absolutely not. I would say that we have a greater proportion of uh, the responsibility than anybody else does. No, I didn't, didn't imply that. What I, what I am saying, though, is that uh, all the problems that affect the world today are connected. I mean, you've got to. Have... I'm sorry.
0: I'm just not going to interrupt. I'm just. I'm not clear whether you think that Barack Obama should have intervened in Syria and whether he's to blame for not doing so.
1: Well, I'm not prepared to cast blame on Barack Obama for what happened in Syria. What happened in Syria is a result of what Assad did, not from what Barack Obama did. But he
0: needed a response.
1: Well, you know, there was a response. But again, war gets very complicated. It's easy to sit back and say, you know, had Barack Obama done this, then maybe Assad wouldn't have done this. Uh, But I think a lot of that is in hindsight. The fact of the matter is, it is President Assad who started the barrel bombing. It is President Assad who began the genocide. It is President Assad who worked with the the Russians. So be very, very careful about making uh, the point that this is all Barack Obama's fault. I mean, that is absolutely not the case.
0: Um making the point that the response was perhaps not strong enough.
1: I, I would agree with you there. Okay. We're in agreement.
0: We got it. Let's look at North Korea. Let's take another easy one. All
1: right. <laughs> no, yeah, we're, piss we're, me some softballs here, will you?
0: <laughs> we're through the 101, so we're going to do the difficult one now. Now, North Korea is obviously particularly difficult to formulate response to, because even finding out exactly what is going on is difficult enough. Tensions have been rising, of course, uh, since that first successful ICBM test in July. And uh, President Trump has threatened some very severe things, something, he says, will have to be done. What can he do? What should he do?
1: Well, uh, you know, we are so far down the road in terms of the limited number of options that we have uh, for North Korea. I think you can put this on the doorstep of a number of presidencies in the United States for many, many years. Uh, And again, probably on the doorstep of a lot of countries. But we are at a a point, and I think we have been for a while, where you have Kim Jong-un, who is an irrational actor. And this is the hard part. When you look at how people form their strategies and their grand strategies, whether it's our dealings with uh, Russia, whether it's our dealings with China, uh, whoever it might be, we recognize that most of their leaders are rational actors. So if we do this, we would expect Putin to do this. If we do this, we expect the supreme leader in Iran to do this. If we do this, we expect uh, Xi Jinping to do this. You cannot make that assumption with Kim Jong un. And therefore, we can't map out, we can't build a strategy based on those kind of assumptions. The one assumption we can make is that he is not going to stop to try to get and miniaturize his nuclear weapons, you know. What you have with Kim Jong-un and North Korea is he has, at least according to open source reporting, he has between 15 and 18 nuclear weapons. I don't know the size of those weapons, but they are clearly not small enough at this point in time to put on an intercontinental ballistic missile. And his goal to be a nuclear power is, ha- is to have the ability to deliver that nuclear weapon through an intercontinental ballistic missile. And this is what he is driving at. And I think it's going to be very difficult for us to stop him because, as I mentioned, he's not a rational actor. So this idea that we can work with China to uh, put sanctions on him or that maybe the South Koreans can develop a strategy of, uh, of a little bit more cooperation with North Korea, I don't think any of those strategies will work because Kim Jong-un has no desire to do anything but miniaturize a nuclear weapon and put it on an ICBM and make that ICBM work. Then he becomes a regional powerhouse, in his mind at least, uh, once he has a, a weaponized uh, nuclear weapon.
0: So what would your approach be, given that, as you suggest, often the, the nuclear race is, is built on a mixture of threat and diplomacy, often in sort of alternating tact. What would you recommend when it comes to having to formulate a response to someone who you suggest is not really open to any of that pressure.
1: Yeah, well, again, our options are very, very limited, and I'm not sure I have the answer to it. I think you have to continue to work with the Chinese and hope that the Chinese have some leverage that maybe we don't know about. Uh, There's always been this sense that China has a special relationship with North Korea. I think there is some truth to that, but I do not think that uh, North Korea does everything China wants them to do but there may be some leverage points that we just aren't aware of. So we have to work with the Chinese. I think you have to keep all your options open. Have to figure out if the South Koreans uh, have some economic leverage in a positive fashion that could help. I think you also have to be prepared for the worst, which is to build a defensive perimeter around uh, North Korea so that we in the United States and, and South Korea and Japan and others have the wherewithal to stop uh, a missile launch were it to occur. So I think that's where we, we are in our strategy.
0: We asked you a question at the top of the interview, which was, what was the world's greatest global threat? In a way, you're sounding a bit spoilt for choice, aren't you? It's, uh, yes. The Times feel like that. Some people, uh, quite a lot of books appearing this year in uh, America, uh, pointing out that China itself uh, may be uh, be a threat or, or a destabilization could be about to occur in the South China Sea. If you were to rank the threats that we've discussed or indeed bring up others, what is your biggest global worry.
1: Yeah, I I still put North Korea at the top, uh, because North Korea could be an existential threat for the countries in the region, and particularly for the United States. I would put close behind that Syria, and the Syria crisis follows as number two, and not because of ISIS, and not necessarily because of the genocide, as horrible as that is in Syria, but because of the mass migration that is pressurizing both Europe and is pressurizing the Levant. That can have a cascading effect, I think, across a lot of regions, and as Europe goes and as the Middle East goes, the world goes. So I see those as my top two. Obviously, I'm very concerned about Russia's play on the global stage and the implications of what happens in Crimea and what they're doing in Syria. Uh, They always concern us. But again, as uh, hyperbolic as he can be sometimes, I still think uh, Putin is a rational actor. Uh, And I think, uh, again, the Chinese are rational actors.
0: Uh, Speaking of possible hyperbole, Donald Trump is often accused of somewhat shooting from the hip verbally, that is. But do you welcome the fact that he speaks straight or do you think that he misses the point?
1: Well, I think there is a lot of learning that is occurring on the part of the new president. Uh, And I think this is true of any new president that steps into the Oval Office. I think President Trump's learning curve has been a little bit steeper uh, because he doesn't come from that world. But he has got a great core of advisors around him. And I think if he listens and leans on the advisors, uh, Secretary Mattis, Uh, Secretary John Kelly, Homeland Security, H.R. McMaster is a national security advisor, uh, Rex Tillerson, Uh, I think uh, we'll be all right.
0: Tell us a bit more, if you could, on uh, special operations, and particularly Operation Neptune Spear to track down Osama bin Laden. The world held its breath, and I think numerous books and, and dramas have since appeared about it. The big question, of course, was whether that was the right way to do it. You have always said that you found that it was. Is there no part of you that thinks that had there been a way to bring Osama bin Laden to justice or before a sort of court of, of international opinion and normal judicial measures that that would have been a better way?
1: Uh, you know, I, I can't look at it in hindsight. I mean, the fact of the matter is we were given a mission uh, to go capture him if he gave up, which he did not. Uh, if he presented no resistance, uh, which he did, you know, which he did not, I mean, by the rules of engagement, uh, we would have captured him and brought him back. That opportunity didn't present itself. He didn't put his hands up. He didn't uh, give up. And therefore, uh, I think the operators, uh, you know, it under- was always
0: rather unlikely, though, wasn't it?
1: I don't know. It's hard to say what was going through his head at the time, but the bottom line was uh, I was given a tactical mission, which was to either capture uh, bin Laden if he was uh, completely not a threat or if he presented any sort of threat that, you know, we'd have to kill him and ensure that his body came back, that we could verify that it was bin Laden. And and again, I I think the mission went off as planned.
0: I think that's an understatement possibly of the century. But um, when you say it went off as planned, to have even at your level of seniority and with your career experience, that must have been an extraordinary moment.
1: Interestingly enough, uh, it's not that I wasn't naive to the political ramifications of the mission, but the mission was not tactically uh, much harder than a lot of other missions we've done. Uh, In fact, I would say it was a a fairly straightforward mission. The hard part, of course, was it was a long helicopter flight. It was about 162 miles um, to get from Afghanistan to Abbottabad. Uh, We knew that if anything went wrong, it had uh, very clear strategic implications. Uh, The the Pakistanis. certainly would have been prepared to shoot the helicopters down. But having said that, uh, again, I had the very best soldiers I could find in terms of the Navy SEALs. I had great helicopter pilots. We rehearsed the mission extensively. Uh, we had great intelligence. And uh, of course, as you know, one of the helicopters did have a hard landing, but we had planned for that exact scenario. Uh, so we went from plan A to plan B, and uh, plan B seemed to work out. Uh, but I, as the mission was unfolding, There was not a lot of anxiety on my part. I'd seen many missions like this before. We just wanted to make sure we got in, got the mission done, and got the boys home safely.
0: Indeed. Is there any part of you that still feels fear when you do something like that?
1: Fear not for yourself, but always fear for the the men or the women that are part of the mission. I think the hardest part for a commander in a position like mine where you are sending young men and women into harm's way is you worry about them. You, you certainly don't worry about yourself. Uh, you worry whether or not they're going to get caught in a firefight, whether their helicopter is going to get shot down. Because, you know, in a lot of cases, you know these young men and women. And and they are not just uh, nameless, faceless people. They are, they are people you work with. And in the case of this particular mission, I knew everybody on it, and knew them very well. So, yeah, you're you're always worried about that. That's the fear of command. It is. It's rarely fear about your own well-being.
0: We'll come on to the broader lessons that you draw from that episode, and you talk about the things that civilians are always fascinated to know what someone thinks makes a mission like that a success. You talk about surprise, speed, security, simplicity. That's a lot of S's. Purpose repetition. But if you had to choose one quality, what is it?
1: Uh, simplicity. I think a lot of times when you have a very difficult, complex problem, uh, people think that a complex solution is is the best uh, approach. And I'm a little bit more of a Gordian's knot sort of guy. You know, when you see a very complex problem, sometimes you have to take the, most, the simplest route to solve it. When we looked at this problem uh, in the planning phase, there were a number of different options. Um, But all the options created more complexity on the ground. So I made the decision we would just fly directly to the target, conduct the mission, and fly directly back. And there were some folks that uh, had a little bit of heartburn with that in terms of, you know, it, was that going to provide us the maximum amount of surprise? Was that going to be exactly what we needed? But I made the decision that it was the simplest, the easiest to control, the easiest to command.
0: But I suppose people might be thinking, like, this comes with a sort of enticing title, make your bed. Then it goes off into, you know, a sort of clear list of, of how you should approach big decisions or or sort of troublesome moments. So you start with something as simple as make your bed. Are you really telling me you'll get your uh, special ops ladies and gentlemen to make their beds in the morning before they go off to kill some bin laden
1: right so well absolutely so the the point of the book make your bed uh, and as you point out it has 10 lessons i learned from my time in seal training but the first uh, thing we did every morning in seal training was we had to make our bed and the instructors the seal instructors who during my time they were all vietnam veterans would have to come in and inspect your bed and inspect your uniform kind of standard military practice i didn't quite understand why in the world were we worried about making our beds i wanted to be a battle-hardened navy seal and here we are starting the day off making our bed. Mm. And, the, and the two lessons learned from that was, one, when you have a simple task like making your bed, if you do that every morning, then it inspires you to do another task and another and another. And it's a simple thing to do, but it gets your morning off right. And it, it gives you a little bit of control and a little bit of self-respect because you have completed a task. But the other thing that the instructor said is, you know, it, the little things matter. So you not only just had to make your bed, you had to make it precisely according to the SEAL standards. And, you know, the instructors would say, if you can't even make your bed right, how are you ever going to lead a large operation? So the point was, if you can't do the little things right, how will you ever learn to do the big things right? And so this was about learning to do the little things right that will then enable you to do the big things right as well.
0: So give me your, I mean, I'm afraid you get to do the radio equivalent, which is the sort of 20-second course. If I'm now going to follow your logic and I'm going to go up my day, I've made my bed right, and I've even got your seal of approval, and now I've got this difficult day and I've got some difficult conversations to have and there's too much to do and I probably haven't managed my time perfectly, what other lessons are going to be useful to me?
1: I, I hope all the lessons in the book are useful at some point in time. Uh, But I would tell you in the course of a day or a week or a month or a year, uh, what I've found certainly in my career is, you know, things don't always go well. Uh, Rarely do things go well. And in combat, my time between, uh, you know, October of 2003 when I first got to Iraq and the time that I I left uh, Afghanistan in 2011 and for years in between there, you know, the day starts off and bad things are going to happen, unfortunately, in combat. You'll lose soldiers. People will yell at you. Bad things are going to happen. You're going to fail. So I think in everybody's life, you'll have moments of failure. And you have to realize that these things happen. Don't dwell on them too much. Take the lessons you learn from the failure and make yourself stronger. You're going to have tough times. You're going to have dark moments. I talk about being your best in the very darkest moments. And it does a number of things. One, people can rise to the occasion. I saw it time and time and time again in my time in the military when horrific things would happen. And people you never expected would rise to the occasion and inspire the people around them. I also talk uh, in the book about uh, the analogy is uh, you have to find somebody to help you paddle. In SEAL training, we have a little rubber boat. And there are seven men in the boat, and you all have to paddle together. So I don't care how tough you are. I don't care if you're the biggest, boldest, bravest Navy SEAL in the world. At the end of the day, you're going to need other people around you to help you, and particularly when things get tough you know, it's great to have friends and, uh, and allies and partners that can help you through those tough moments.
0: I'll give them a go. And I know you're also running something um, at UTS called the American Leadership Program. Right. But I wondered if you think that there is a need for America to rethink how it leads in the world.
1: Well, I would hope that America continues to lead in the world. You know, we have, a, I think, a lot to offer the world in terms of you know, our economy and the the, the relationships we've built with our allies over the years. But the point I made, and it gets back to the, you know, you need people to help you paddle. In the boat, there are seven men. One of them is what we refer to as the coxswain, the man that has to drive the boat. But to the point, you still have to have great friends and great allies, as we do with the UK, as we do with NATO, as we do with our EU partners. Nobody, and whoever is paddling and whoever is steering the boat, and in some cases, it doesn't have to be the United States, certainly. But you have to have good friends and allies to lead in this world.
0: Admiral McRaven, thank you very much. I'm off to make my bed.
1: Good. <laughs> thank you.
0: Well, that's all from The Economist Asks this week. Do join us again next time. From me, and McElvoy in London, this is The Economist.